0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: I'm glad that you're here, and I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And today we're continuing... As we have for so long our multi-year journey through the first book of the New Testament first things are usually very important Uh, we can certainly say that the first books of both testaments of the Bible are very important because they include foundational truths Genesis uh, we know uh, first book in the Bible is foundational for us because there we find the creation we we learn why that we are here we learned that there is a creator God who has breathed into us the breath of life and from Genesis we learned that man is not just a physical being but he is also a spiritual being and that we are made in the image of God and that when God breathed breath into Adam it wasn't just a breath that contained oxygen and nitrogen but he actually breathed into him and made him a living soul We also learn in Genesis that the image of God in us has been marred by sin. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually and he lost the spiritual connection that he had with God. And right there in the beginning of the the Old Testament, we start to get the picture, we start to learn how that God would restore his image in us. And so the story starts to take shape there and we find in this the restoration of man to the favor of God and the restoration of the whole creation to the favor of God is the way that God will receive his greatest glory. Now similarly, the book of Matthew is foundational. Uh, The first book of the New Testament is very important to us because there we find the promised Messiah who was... Promised in the Old Testament. He's the one that the prophets proclaimed. He's introduced to us as the hope of the world, the one who is the great king and redeemer, and the one who actually solves the problem that happened in Genesis. And that is Jesus Christ who came to set the world on a course back to God. He's the one that will bring in his righteous, perfect kingdom and will caused this whole world to reflect the character of the righteous God once again. Now, since that first horrible mistake in Genesis, and, and perhaps maybe we shouldn't even call that a mistake, we call it what it was. It was sin. It was a great crime against God, a slap in the face of God. And since that first sin that Adam committed, the depravity of man has only grown worse. Man has perfected the art of sin until it came to the place that God simply ran out of patience and he threw up a stop sign and he said, no more. And we're going to go into that next time as we look at the next section and talk about the days of Noah. The wickedness of the world in that time was just beyond excessive so that God had to destroy the entire world and saved only one man, and that was Noah, and saved his family. But Noah was not a perfect man because Noah still had a sinful nature just like Adam had that sinful nature after he sinned. And so after that happened, the wickedness of the world, after the flood came, the wickedness of the world only grew worse. Darkness prevailed until we come to the book of Matthew to a time when the darkness was so deep that those who were the chosen people of God, the ones that God had chosen as his very own nation, there were very few of them that had the righteousness of faith. But we find hope in Matthew because we have Matthew's gospel declaring the ancestry of the great king. He is the one who has the right to sit on the throne of God's kingdom. And in him we find the revelation of God's gracious character. We find his righteous character. We find his loveliness, his holiness, his mercy, his compassion. And we find in this story how that he gave his own life for our sins. Now, in Matthew, we have the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. There is his birth. That's told to us. But then we're catapulted 30 years in advance of that to the time that he began his public ministry. And we've studied his life, and we've come all the way down to the last days of his life. And as it was in the days of Noah, we find that There was still rejection of him, even though he showed himself by many signs and wonders, yet people rejected him. And now we are down to within about two days of Jesus' death. And what would you expect that the last teachings of Jesus would be? Knowing that the world lies in such wickedness, that there is such hatred for the things of God, what do you think the last things that Jesus would talk about before he left this world? Well, it seems that it would be appropriate for him to speak about judgment. And this is what Jesus does. He talks about a terrible time of judgment that's going to come upon this world. Now, in the chapter, Jesus responded to questions from his disciples about his coming kingdom. What are the signs that the kingdom will come? And Jesus told them what the signs were. He said, there's going to be this terrible 7 years of judgment that's going to come upon the earth and then it's going to be time for my kingdom. And so here in this passage Jesus illustrates for us how the kingdom's going to come and how to be aware that the kingdom is right on the the verge of coming to the world. Now we look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 32 and let's just stand if you would uh, and we'll read the scriptures here. Matthew 24 and verse number 32, Jesus said to his disciples, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away father thank you for your word and we just ask you lord that you would open up our hearts to the truth of this and lord help us very clearly to understand that judgment is coming upon this world your kingdom is coming and help us to look for the glorious second coming of jesus christ in his name we pray amen you may be seated The theme of Matthew 24 and 25 is the second coming of Christ, and you're going to get a real good taste of this over the next few weeks because Jesus illustrates it and talks about it in so many different ways. Last week we spent time specifically on how Christ is going to come in power and great glory, and here we have in this particular passage of Scripture another incident where Jesus is talking about his second coming. And the Bible is just full of information about this. As as I've already stated in previous messages, there isn't any other topic except faith that gets so much time in the Bible as the second coming. The sacred volume of scripture is filled with this, reference after reference, to this time that Jesus is going to come in that power and great glory and his kingdom will come upon the earth. And in this passage, we don't have the Old Testament view of that. We don't have the Old Testament prophets that are talking about it. We're not looking at the veiled understanding that Old Testament prophets had. But here we have Jesus' own sermon on the subject. Jesus is dealing with this right out of his own mouth. He is the one who is the subject of the sermon. He's the one that's coming. And we have to recognize this is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached on the second coming of our Lord and Savior. Jesus preached this sermon from the Mount of Olives, the same place that overlooks the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's the same place that he would ascend into heaven in just a few days, and the same place that the Word of God says that he will return when his kingdom comes. In Acts chapter 2, there is a description of Jesus as he ascended into heaven. And there the Bible tells us that there were angels that stood by and they were speaking to a crowd of about 500 people that had assembled and they told them that the same Jesus that left would come back. And then we look in other places of Scripture and it does tell us for sure that the place where Jesus will return is to the Mount of Olives and there he will overlook that place where a new temple is going to be built and where he will rule from that new temple in a kingdom that extends to the ends of the earth. And this return of Christ, as we spoke about last week, is going to be an absolutely spectacular event. It's going to be a glorious sight for those that have received the righteousness of Christ, those who have been brought back into the image of God. But it's going to be a frightening event, a terrible event for those who are Christ rejectors. Now the disciples ask about it. They wanted to know about signs of the coming of the fullness of the presence of Christ. A few weeks ago we talked about this when they said, what is the sign of your coming? They didn't really understand second coming What they meant was, when are you going to come into the fullness of your kingdom that we expect? And so they thought that they were right then on the cusp of the kingdom at the very moment, but they were wrong about that. There is a second coming, and Jesus used a parable here to illustrate in this passage. Now I want you to notice first today the information from this fig parable. Jesus was an illustrator. Unlike me, he was a master at this form of teaching. He was very effective at getting his point across through the use of parables. But as we've seen in the past, parables really spoke to believers. That parables turned out to be riddles to people who didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were very hard to understand unless Jesus should give the specific meanings of them. You go back to the 13th chapter, and there you find the parables that Jesus gave about the kingdom. And he would have to give the disciples explanations of of what those parables meant. So most people, people that weren't believers, they didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about. But when he used this parable of the fig tree, this is such a common parable. It's the simplest form of all parables. It's an illustration that's been used several times, or many, many times throughout the Scriptures. And so it's really not all that hard to understand. And I suppose that there is no comparison that is made as often as this in Scriptures, that there is something that is like a fig tree. And we would expect that that comparison would work very well because the fig tree was so common in Israel. Figs were the poor man's food. Figs were so common, the fig tree was so common, that just about anybody could find food easily on a fig tree. And we saw that example in chapter 21 when Jesus was hungry and he approached a fig tree and the fig tree was full of foliage. And yet that fig tree, if you remember, was quite different because there weren't any figs on it. When you went to a fig tree at the time that The leaves were on it. You would fully expect that there would be figs there because the figs always appear before the leaves. But when Jesus came to this tree, there were no figs on it. And do you remember what Jesus did to that tree? He cursed it. And he cursed it as an example of what would happen to Israel. He was talking about judgment. That Israel looked good on the outside. They they looked holy and righteous on the outside. They had all the laws that they kept and they were very, very strenuous about keeping those laws and doing the very best that they could and tried to make themselves good people, but what Jesus showed them was there was no real fruits of righteousness in their heart. And so when you see fig trees in the scripture, you can always expect that some kind of judgment is going to be near or in that particular passage. It was common for teachers to use the fig tree. Now, I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 24, and while you're turning there, I want to mention to you that in other places of the Old Testament, we find parables of fig trees. There is one in the book of Judges. Uh, Hosea talks about figs. Joel spoke about figs. Nahum spoke of figs. Other writers, other prophets of the Old Testament, they also use the fig tree. But here in the book of Jeremiah, we do find a a parable of figs or a story about figs that is typical of all these Old Testament uh, stories about the fig tree. And so in Jeremiah 24 and in verse number 1, Jeremiah says, the Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are evil. Carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as for the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil surely thus saith the Lord so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them and I will send the sword the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Now as we read that, the point of the figs is judgment. They point to a time of harvest when God is going to gather the good from the bad. He's going to preserve the good and he will destroy the bad. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about stars that fall from heaven like figs, like figs falling from a fig tree shaken by a violent wind, and that is the judgment of God. This is God speaking of judgment that falls on the earth, that it's the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And so Jesus says to his disciples, learn the parable of the fig tree. And learn, that is a word that means increase your understanding of this. Get this down into your heart. Let this sink down into you. Understand this very well. He's going to talk to them about judgment that's coming because of the sins of Israel and His kingdom and and the signs of His kingdom coming is that judgment. And folks, let me tell you that that is something that is lost on the church crowd today. People do not want to hear about judgment. People want to hear feel-good stories. They want to come to church and hear about niceties. They want to hear about elevating self-esteem. They want to know about how good they are. And you can go to church and you'll hear them say, well, let's have a seminar about making more money. Let's have a seminar about how we can have success. Let's don't talk about judgment. And here Jesus says, you better talk about judgment. Now, preachers are obliged to give people what they want. And what they don't want is the Bible. People don't want to take a Bible to church anymore. They come and they hear a sermon that's been taken straight from the Scriptures. And they hear the Bible expounded and explained. And they think that the preacher has developed some sort of a theory that nobody's ever heard before. I think about this when... I'm at home and I might just flip on the TV for a minute and there, uh, before you can even close your eyes, there's a program where somebody has jumped into bed with the opposite sex or with the same sex and nobody has a sense of morality and decency anymore. And so if you come to church and you preach a message about the sanctity of marriage and you preach about preserving yourself for marriage, people will look at you as if you have a message that came from a different planet. Kids are raised on TV as their pacifier. They're given computers and cell phones and video games. And folks, there's just no time for us to look at the Bible any longer. Most of you as Christians do not have a Bible reading program in your home. You don't read the Bible yourself. You don't take any time for it. Your Bible sits at home with dust on the cover. It looks like the same way it was when you bought it in 1985. There is no time to read the Bible. And so if there isn't anything in the home, and then when you go to church, there's nothing in the church, what do you expect will happen? Are you going to learn anything? No. And what we have is a generation that hasn't learned anything. And if by off chance they should go to church, they won't learn anything. Well, Jesus says, Learn this. Get to know this, because one day there will be a judgment. Now he says in verse number 32, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors." Now again, a very simple illustration. He describes a fig tree with branches that are filled up with the sap of the growth of spring. The winter has passed and the leaves are starting to bud on the tree. The figs are growing underneath of those leaves. And when you see the leaves, you know that summer and harvest is approaching. Summer is coming, the harvest is coming, and harvest is the time of gathering. The disciples wanted signs. The signs were earthquakes and pestilences and famines and wars and fear and the Antichrist and persecution. Those are the signs of the coming kingdom and the kingdom is tied to those signs. And Jesus said, when you see them, know that it is near. Well, what does he mean by it? What does that mean? It is near. Well, the antecedent of it is actually the kingdom. You have to go back up to verse number 30 to get the antecedent. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now Luke clears this up for us a little as he makes the coming of the Son of Man synonymous with God's kingdom. And so in Luke chapter 21, and he spake unto them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. So the it, that is the kingdom of God, when you see this, you know that it, the kingdom of God, is near. And so this is the information that he gives in the parable of the fig tree. When the signs happen, it's like a fig tree that's approaching harvest. You can't miss it. You know that it's about to happen. Now, that brings us to our second observation. And number two is the generation of final people. Now, obviously, when Jesus speaks of these things that are going to take place, there is a generation of people that will see these signs. Who is it that will see the signs that Jesus has previously described? And I have to tell you that understanding who this is is critical to the interpretation of the passage. Now I know some of you may wonder where do we get our ideas of eschatology and remember eschatology means the the study of the end times or study of last things where do we get this theology how do do we determine these things the theology of the end times and this is one of those places where we absolutely have to get this right because if we don't get this right we're going to end up with something entirely different in this passage than the second coming of Christ Jesus said this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled now what does he mean by this generation who are these people that he's speaking of well that's critical does he mean the disciples and that's what some people think to the disciples he says you are going to see this you're not going to die until all of this takes place you will see it now in case you didn't know I mean, I need to tell you something that might destroy your faith altogether. This may shake you to the very roots, but did you know this? All the disciples are dead. Did you know that? They're all dead. And there are many generations since that have died, and Jesus has not come back. And so if he was talking about those disciples, then one of two things must be true. Either this passage has nothing at all to do with the second coming, or Jesus was wrong and he missed it by a mile. Now, strangely enough, there are people who take option number two. They say, yes, this is about the second coming, but Jesus missed it. He didn't actually know what he was talking about. And so what they do is they point to verse number 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And so what Jesus did then was to give his best guess. This is information that he didn't really have. And we're going to talk about verse number 36 next week and what that means. But I can promise you this, that the almighty omniscient God, who is Jesus Christ, did not make guesses. He didn't have to guess about things that he didn't know. And so if that's not the case, then we're sure it's not the case then if he said that the disciples would not die until they saw these signs, then he couldn't have been talking about the second coming. There had to be another event that he had in mind. Now, as we've studied Matthew 24, I haven't really talked to you very much about this other opinion of the events that happened here, but it is necessary that we talk about it now. There is the opinion that all of these things that we're reading about took place in the distant past 2,000 years ago and it occurred at the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now we did talk a little bit about the Roman general Titus who put down a Jewish revolt at that time. Jerusalem was under siege. The Roman army uh, had Jerusalem under siege and it was a terrible time. People were starving. There was cannibalism. People in the city of Jerusalem were eating their own children. And you can't think of Much worse than that. And then in verse number 15, it says that there would be an abomination of desolation that would come into the city and he would go into the temple and he would defile it. And they say that Titus did that. The same thing that Antiochus Epiphanes had done 200 years before when he went into Jerusalem and entered into the temple and offered a sow on the altar. Well, Titus did go into the temple. He did offer heathen sacrifices. And so they make Titus the abomination in verse number 15. But let's go back through it for just a minute. And we're trying to determine who are these people that he's talking about. Let's see if that interpretation matches what Jesus described. Now, we go back to verse number 6. And he said that there would be wars and rumors of wars. In verse number 7, he said that nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And I can tell you that this is a problem for A.D. 70 because there weren't many wars that were going on. The Roman Empire had the world locked down. Palestine wasn't the middle of some great conflict. And there were no kingdoms that were involved. The Romans were after a band of Jewish zealots that had holed up in Jerusalem. But Israel wasn't a kingdom. They were a wannabe kingdom. This is the very thing that the disciples were asking about. When are we going to be a kingdom again? And so that's nothing like what Jesus described. And then Jesus talked about worldwide conflict. In verse number nine, he said, All the nations of the world are going to hate you. Well, the Romans hated them, but there wasn't really much anybody else around to make an impact on the Jews. And then he talked about earthquakes and pestilences and famines and I don't recall any history where there was any abnormal season of earthquakes. I don't know about pestilences. In AD 79, Pompeii was destroyed when Mount Vesuvius erupted, but that was nine years later and 1,300 miles away. So that doesn't work. But I think that we can put all of this to rest when With Jesus' own words, when he said in verse number 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, nor ever shall be. And there's no way that you can apply that statement to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's not the worst that's happened. It's not the worst that happened since the beginning of the world. And it's not the worst that's happened since. In AD 70, there were 1.1 million Jews that were killed in the siege of Jerusalem. In World War II, there were six times that many Jews that were killed. There have been worse wars, there have been worse famines and worse pestilences. In the Middle Ages, half of Europe died from the Black Plague. The population of the world was reduced by 200 million people during the Black Plague. And so if Jesus meant that 80, 70, that's the worst, then he missed that too. Now I said verse number 21 just kind of sums it up and wraps it up. Why don't we look at verse number 29? Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Have you ever read anything like that in history? And then what about verse 30? Where did Jesus come in power and great glory? When did that happen? When were all the elect gathered from the four corners of the earth? That didn't happen. So Jesus couldn't have been talking about that generation of the disciples. In order to get that, you have to seriously allegorize the entire passage and destroy the impact of Christ's teaching in order to make history work with this. But nevertheless, that's a widely accepted interpretation. And what they do is they do spiritualize the text. And what they do is they take the sting out of Jesus' teachings. It makes him appear grandiose with nothing to back it up. There is no power and glory. They've taken that out of the second coming. And they've localized it to one place on the face of the earth that really nobody ever talked about. Now if you're wondering... Who am I talking about here? I'm speaking of those who have an awe millenary view or a historical view of Matthew 24. And what they have is a whimpering second coming, coming and not an awesome display of the power of God. And so, who is he talking about? Well, we only have one option that works with the text. And that is we have to take a futuristic view, not a historical one. And that Jesus must be referring to a future generation that will be alive at this time. And that generation is not going to pass until all of this is fulfilled. And you know why they won't? Because he's not talking about thousands of years. He's talking about a very short time. He's speaking of seven years of tribulation. And the generation that is alive at the beginning of the tribulation will live long enough. They will live that seven years. At the end of seven years, many will still be there and they're going to go into the kingdom on the earth. And so those that are living then, many will make it through and go into the earthly kingdom. Well, now let's look at verse number 35 as we conclude for today. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now thirdly is the inspiration of the future promise. What is the promise? The promise is that Christ is coming back. The angel said the same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. That's the promise. And you can go back into the Old Testament, to the very oldest of the texts that we have in the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Job. And Job spoke of it. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And the Bible is full of recollections of that promise. And there is none better than when Jesus speaks the promise himself. This is just hours before he was crucified. A time that was stressful, beyond stressful for the disciples. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus showed what would happen in the Passover celebration as he took and broke the bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he took the cup and he poured it and he said, this blood is my blood or this cup is the blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And he told them that he was going to the cross. And he told them that he was going to die and they could not follow him there. There was nothing at all that they could do to stop the cross. They were not going to be able to die with him, even though Peter and Thomas protested that they would. He was going to the cross alone. He would do this with no friends that stood beside him. Peter said, I want to go now. I want to lay down my life for you now. And Jesus told him, Peter, you're not even going to make it beyond the next few hours. Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And so it's really bad for us to think that the last time that we see Jesus with all the disciples together, that... It's right before they all leave him and run away. And yet, knowing what they would do, and knowing what he would do, he left them with a promise. In those last few hours of his teaching, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he went away. And that's what he's been doing. He's been preparing for the kingdom to come. He's getting ready now for the most glorious day in all the history of the world. The day that's been spoken of since the prophet Job, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the preaching of the New Testament. It is the coming to this world of Jesus Christ. And he said, this generation is not going to pass away. And so he's not talking about those disciples that were there. They weren't going to experience the promise in the way that he was talking about because he would not come back for them. They would come back with him. That's their great expectation. They were going to die and come back with him when he comes again. And so just like in Matthew 24, there's a future generation that will be alive that Christ will receive unto himself... And if we see that, we can't really have a problem with the promise of chapter 24 being fulfilled for the disciples if we don't have problems with John chapter 14. Now notice what he says in the first part of verse 35. And we don't read this like a promise, but it is. Heaven and earth shall pass away. That's a promise. It's a promise of a different sort, but it is a promise. Peter wrote, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Isaiah said, and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. And there we have the fig tree illustration again, the parable of a fig tree. That's a promise. Heaven and earth will pass away. Someday it's all going to be over. And I can't tell you when. I don't know the when of this, but I can tell you this. Look for the sap rising in the branches of the fig tree. Watch for the figs and watch the leaves push out from the stem. Heaven and earth shall pass away. That's the promise. And here, here is the main promise that is intended. He said, my word shall not pass away. Now often that phrase is used to defend the eternal nature of God's word, the Bible. That God's word is forever settled and preserved in heaven. You know, we get a lot of comments about our use of the King James Version. Hardly anybody ever uses the King James anymore. You look for a church in this area that still uses the King James. If you look for one, pack your lunch before you go because you're going to starve trying to find one. They're, they're just not around. And when I say starve, you will starve in more ways than one. But we, we still use the King James Version because we don't want a mutilated version that's somebody's idea of what they think that God should have said. I don't want an NIV with verses that are left out. And I don't want somebody to tell me which parts I am to believe and which parts, according to some scribe, ought to be taken in or taken out. And I don't want somebody to tell me this part of the Bible is authentic, but this part is not. I don't want any of that. Oh, people complain, though, the KJV is, is archaic. Is it archaic? Well, that just makes it all the more interesting to find out what it means. Do I want the Bible to read like the morning newspaper or like a novel? No. Because I don't think dumbing it down does anything for what God wants to get across and the majesty of the language in which He speaks. But that be as it may, this is a text that's used to defend inspiration and preservation of Scripture. And that's true. God preserves His Word. And that's why we have the Bible right now. We can count on it being the Word of God because He does preserve it. He has inspired it and He's left it for us to read. But that's not the point that Jesus is making in this text. His point is, the promise of the second coming cannot fail. As sure as heaven and earth will pass away, just as sure is his promise to come back and to save us from the destruction. Now let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 3 for just a minute. I'm working my way down to get you out of here in just a few minutes, so I don't have time really to break all of this scripture down. But the context of Second Peter chapter 3 is the second coming of Christ. Peter said, heaven and earth will pass away. And I just read that a moment ago in verse number 10. Now let's look at what he says in verse number 9. Second Peter 3 verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if you want to find a passage of Scripture in the Bible that says that God has a desire for all people to be saved, then you have my permission to uh, look in the Bible and find the text to help prove what what you believe about that. But what I want to warn you about here is that not to try and use this text to prove that because the context of this will prove you wrong. This particular text is not really about God's desire to save everybody that's in the world. But the text is about a particular group of people who are the elect of God. That God definitely intends to save them. And he's long-suffering waiting until all of them come to faith in him. Now remember that the context of this chapter is not about now. The reference here is the promise of heaven and earth that it will pass away. And, of course, Peter believed that the Lord would come in his time just as we believe the Lord would come in our time. And we know, according to this passage, that when Christ decides to return, that he's not going to wrap up the history of the world until he saves every person that he is determined to save. I mean, I think we could all agree with that, that he's not going to end the world prematurely. He's going to save all those that he intends to save. Now, verse number 15, we see that that statement is proved. It says, An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, there is also a promise in the Word of God that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And the long-suffering that we find in verse number 9 is the same long-suffering that we find in verse number 15. And it is salvation. And if that means anything other than God's elect, then what we would have is universal salvation. God's desire in verse number 9 is to save all people, then verse 15 guarantees that all people would be saved. Do you see that? And so we can understand that the us word in verse number 9 is that God is long-suffering towards those who are his elect. And so if you trace back Second Peter 3, verse number 1, all the way back to First Peter 1, verse number 2, you see who this whole thing is written to. These are sure promises that we can count on. That no one for whom Christ has died will fail to realize their promise of salvation and see the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this as I close. The second coming is going to be a shocking event for some. Some will have waited too long. They refuse to learn the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree will be ripe and they've passed by it many times. They've passed by all the pleas of the Savior to come to him that they might have life. And there may be some of you in here this morning that you are ignoring the plea even as I speak. And I'm not speaking of ignoring the signs of the second coming because those signs are not here yet. But you are ignoring the signs of salvation. There is a creator. And we see him in the very first book of the Bible. That foundational book of Genesis, we see a creator in the beginning was God and you can't miss him. He's written all over the creation of the world. And the Creator God is right now sustaining you and keeping you alive and keeping you from being judged at this very moment. And the Creator is telling you to repent of your sins and He's also telling you He's not going to wait forever. You take care or you take advantage of His goodness every single day of your life which puts you forever in His debt. And not only do you take advantage of His goodness every day but you're doing that while you are in rebellion against him now you see in the book of acts the word of God says that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent John the Baptist came preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and did you know that when Jesus started preaching what his very first words in his preaching was the very first word Matthew four seventeen. from that time Jesus began to preach and to say Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now here is the thing, folks. God is not going to overlook willful ignorance forever. Someday the figs are going to fall. Someday judgment will come. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, it will come The kingdom of God will come to you. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now and we're anxiously awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. All of your people should be every day in great anticipation that you're going to come. But we also know, Lord, that there are many that are going to be ashamed, many that will see the coming and they're going to be shocked by it. Lord, they're going to die in their sins and have no hope for eternal life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand this now, to see it now. In these next couple of weeks or so, we'll see the many times that Jesus says, you don't know when it's going to happen. You better be prepared. You don't know when it's going to happen. And he encourages us time after time after time to get ready because it will happen. Lord, speak to some soul today. Draw them close to you cause them to repent and come to faith in you help us now lord as we sing in jesus name we pray
0: amen thank you for listening to this presentation of the berean baptist church of roanoke park california if you would like further information about our church please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at berean baptist church 6298 country club drive ronard park california 94928 additionally you may visit us on the world wide web at www.bebaptist.org